Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. If you have a bulletin, the notes are in there. If you don't have a Bible, the text is written on the back of the bulletin. So you can follow along. Luke 18. In fact, this week we'll be closing out Luke chapter 18. As we begin our final approach to Jerusalem. I mentioned to you last week how um, this journey of Jesus to Jerusalem, it's the single largest portion of Luke's Gospel, nearly ten chapters, ended when Jesus pulled aside the twelve, spoke in His clearest terms yet about the crucifixion. And all this time as they've been going to Jerusalem, they've been going to Jerusalem, well now we are drawing near. And as we approach Holy Week, Resurrection Sunday, Good Friday, I'd encourage you to, to meditate on these things, to read this passage, the passage they're leading up to it. Because once we begin chapter 19, by the end of chapter 19, Jesus will be in the temple in Jerusalem. So I'd like to begin this morning by reading our text, Luke 18, 35-43. As He drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And we've shifted into Luke's Gospel. Jericho is, is only about 12 and a half miles from Jerusalem. And, and Luke, is in his masterful telling of this story, um, is setting up the climax of Jerusalem. You, you see it in the first phrase here, verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho. But then in chapter 19, look at verse 29, when he drew near to Beth's phage and Bethany were closer still. Verse 36 of chapter 19, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near already the way down the Mount of Olives. And then verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city. And so that's your fourth time seeing that phrase. And so we're drawing near, we're drawing near, we're drawing near. And given what Jesus has just said, what Luke has recorded, Jesus' purpose in going to Jerusalem should be ringing in our ears. He is going to die. He is going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And here, we've probably been in this travel section for about a year and a half. Jerusalem is drawing nigh. We're ascending up, the, up to, towards Jerusalem to buy Jericho. Also, this week's text and next week's text with Zacchaeus are really the last two bright notes prior to the resurrection. 
These are the last converts, the last people who receive Jesus' teaching well. Once Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he will teach and he will oppose and be opposed by the Pharisees and he will denounce them and pronounce woes upon the city. But, but this is it for, for conversions in Luke's record prior to the crucifixion. This, this is it. This week and next week. Two unlikely men. A, a blind beggar and a tax collector. And yet, there's so much glory and goodness of our Lord to see here. The text itself unfolds really over two points. We have the uh, persistent and faithful appeal of the blind beggar and a compassionate and powerful Savior. Persistent and faithful appeal and a compassionate and powerful Savior. Let's begin by looking at the first point, verses 35 to 39. A persistent and faithful appeal. So Luke gives us the location, which is Jericho, one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities on earth but more recently featuring in Luke's Gospel. And I don't think that's for nothing. Where, where did Jericho last show up in Luke's Gospel? Why, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Because a man was overtaken by robbers on the road down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And there it was that people walked by without compassion, a Levite and a priest, this, this man in this pitiable condition. And the Samaritan had mercy and he cared for him. And here Jesus on the road to Jericho is going to have compassion while the crowds do not. And we're introduced now to the, the protagonist, the blind beggar. And in the other Gospels, he's given a name, Bartimaeus, which likely means that he eventually became known to the church. But Luke doesn't focus on that. I, I think part of the reason for that is to highlight his, his lowness. Remember, we've just come out of uh, the rest of chapter 18 focusing on the ethic that Jesus taught in verse 18 of chapter 18, 14 of 18, which is everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And then the disciples are too good for babies to come near Jesus, but Jesus isn't too good for babies, not in that sense. And a rich young ruler, the best shot they've got, a moral man, a man concerned about eternal things, he, he's sorrowful. He, he doesn't draw near. And then Jesus himself epitomized this ethic of humility before exaltation that because Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, he's the ultimate picture of humility and willful suffering. Now we're to see this lowly beggar. And does Jesus have time for him? Does Jesus care for him? Well, you know the answer. He does. And so the beggar is sitting on the side of the road. And it makes sense because three times a year, all faithful Israelite men needed to go to Jerusalem for the feasts. And the road up from Jericho, Jericho being a large town or city, was a thoroughfare. And so if you're a beggar, this is a great place and a great time to set up to beg. There'll be many, many pilgrims going up to the temple. And so he's sitting on the side of the road, and he hears a commotion. Because Jesus, as we've seen through Luke's Gospel, is continuously traveling with a large crowd. A crowd so large at one point in Luke's Gospel, they're in danger of trampling each other. And so he asks what the commotion is about. Hearing the crowd, he inquired what this meant. And then we get the crowd's response. They cried out, no, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And I want you to get that because there's a strong contrast between what the crowd refers to Jesus as and what the blind beggar refers to Jesus as. Jesus of Nazareth. Why Jesus of Nazareth? Was that where Jesus was born? No, where was Jesus born? 
Bethlehem. But he was raised in Nazareth. And this crowd mistakenly thinks he's a he's Nazarene. He's from Nazareth. Um, partly indicating their ignorance of who he is. Because of course you're not going to make the Davidic connections without knowing he was born in the city of David, Bethlehem. Now Luke's given us that. In, in Luke chapter 2, verse 4, we're told Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So we know, the reader knows, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But this crowd does not apparently have a very good idea or understanding of who Jesus is. He's just Jesus the Naz- from Nazareth. Jesus is a common enough name, and so you can't just say it's Jesus, because the beggar could say, well, which Jesus? It's Jesus from Nazareth. Nothing respectful, nothing honoring, nothing indicating this crowd is is anything more than here for a show. But the, the blind beggar's response is startling. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I don't know how this blind man worked out his theology, but he is quite insightful. Now we've been told many messianic titles for Jesus in Luke's Gospel. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the prophet. He's the Son of God. But now for the first time in Luke's Gospel, the title Son of David is given to him. And it's not given by one of the twelve or by Peter or by a disciple. It is on the lips of a blind beggar. Son of David. That's a huge title a huge title. And it's in stark contrast to what the crowd said. Jesus of Nazareth. No, he's Jesus, son of David. And Luke, Luke wants to emphasize that because he tells us twice what this guy cries out. And he leaves off Jesus the second time. What remains? Verse 39, son of David, have mercy on me. This, this, this man, whether it was by going out to John the Baptist and hearing his baptism, whether it was by hearing the stories and the teachings of Jesus, I know not. But this man of faith and Jesus will commend his faith by the end of this passage, has worked out in, in greater clarity than even the disciples who Jesus is. And that title, Son of David, is, is laden with messianic content. Point one here. He believes, what this means is, he believes Jesus is the messianic king. He believes Jesus is the messianic king. T- turn over to chapter 20. You'll see the usage of this phrase, Clearly here, as Jesus corrects Pharisees. Chapter 20, verse 41. He said to them, how can you say that the Christ is David's son? So there's a clear understanding. They understand David's son, son of David, is the Christ, which is Greek for the Hebrew messiah, which means Messiah or anointed. For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So they understood the the son of David to be the Messiah. Now turn back into your Old Testament to 2 Samuel 7. This title, son of David, is built upon what's commonly called the Davidic covenant. There are a number of great covenants in the Old Testament. First, God's Covenant with Noah, not the flood of the earth. God's covenant with Abraham. The law covenant at Sinai. The priestly covenant with Phineas. But the, the Vedic covenant is of huge importance in clarifying 
who this one, the seed of the woman, will be who comes. And you remember David wanted to build the Lord a house, and the Lord, in one sense, was pleased with David's desire, but he corrects him through Nathan the prophet, and, and pick it up in verse 11, middle of the verse, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, and, and the word play, both in English holds up in Hebrew, a house can be a physical building, or it can be your, your dynasty, your descendants, like the house of David. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body. Remember the great care that Luke gave to make it clear that not just Joseph was a son of David, was a Davidite, but Mary. We got Mary's genealogy in chapter 3 of Luke because not only is it important for Jesus to have the legal claim to the throne, God's promise to, to, to David was that there would be continuity between his body and the body of the Messiah. What we view as genetics nowadays. From David's body would come the Messiah, and so we learn that Mary also is of the descendants of David. I will raise up your offspring after you, verse 12, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. And what did, what did God the Father say on the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my son, whom I well pleased. Turn to Psalm 2. Briefly, you've got to understand that this messianic title, Son of David, is huge. This is a huge claim. I think it's part of the reason they tell him to shut up. Later, when something similar is said as he approaches Jerusalem, the Pharisees will tell him to stop his disciples from blaspheming. Stop, stop saying that. It's inappropriate. Because remember, God says, I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. Psalm 2, in speaking of the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's son, the Lord's king, makes it clear this kingdom, this rule will be worldwide. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or against his Messiah or against his Christ saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So first he's the Lord's anointed in verse 2. Now he's the king. And then in verse 7, he's the son. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, and here's the language from the Davidic covenant, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the world, earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in calling Jesus son of David, he is identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 2. The Jews of Jesus' day were awaiting a Messiah who would be the son of David, who would exercise a kingdom that would be absolute, worldwide, geopolitical. And for the first time in Luke's gospel, clearly stated, this, this messianic title, son of David, is found on the lips 
of a blind beggar. God likes to work through humble means. Through humble means. He believes, back to our outline, back to our text, Jesus is the messianic king. He believes Jesus is the messianic king. So what is, what is his plea? He pleads for mercy. That's awfully familiar too, isn't it? Remember the, the parable that set up this whole section and this ethic, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. What does the tax collector plead for? Look at verse 13 of chapter 18. Tax collector standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So he, he understands with greater clarity in some respects than anyone so far in this gospel who Jesus is. And he's got the right request. He's pleading for mercy. Unlike the rich young ruler, he's not giving a list of his accomplishments. He's not saying that he was done hard by, that he, he was blinded in a war and could you help? No, he's just, I need mercy. I need mercy. He's pleading for mercy. That's good. And it's in stark contrast to the crowds. He's just Jesus from Nazareth, but he, he does some really crazy things. You see, point three here, and this is the irony of blindness. In this text, who's blind and who sees in the, in the ways that matter? No, this, this man already sees while the crowd is actually blind. He's just Jesus from Nazareth. No, he's, he's the son of David. You see, in the, in the way that most matters, this man already sees. I mean, Jesus has already told the disciples, blessed are your ears for they hear, blessed are your eyes for they see. Spiritual reality. This blind man has more sight than this crowd. And the crowd will prove that even further by rebuking him. So, in the Luke's Gospel, first time this title is on the lips of someone, Son of David, what's the crowd's response? They go, oh wow, we hadn't thought of that. Shut up. Silence. Why is that? Well, I think given the theme of what we've seen, that the beggars are extremely low in social stature. We're on our way to Jerusalem. It's been a long journey. And it's really, we could get there this day perhaps. If only this blind beggar could just shut up and stop bothering the teacher. In fact, to turn back to chapter 14 to get an idea of just how lowly in status they were. Because remember, the common theology of the day was that if you were sick, if you were poor, if you were disabled, it was God's judgment. You'd done something to deserve it. The Tower of Siloam fell on those people after all because they were worse sinners, right? So this, this man deserves this. This is a judgment from God. He must have done something wicked we don't know about. And Jesus instructing the Pharisee whose house he went to for the banquet tells him this in chapter 14, verse 13. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Notice on what social strata blind people are. They're right alongside the poor, the crippled, the lame. These are the dregs. These are the low. I mean, maybe not as low as a sinner or a tax collector, which is why we've got to start with 19 with a tax collector, just to make the point emphatically clear. But this is a nobody, an embarrassment, a pariah. Certainly not someone you want to stop your journey to Jerusalem for. I mean, man, we're almost there. So someone tell him to shut up. 
Now, the crowd's blind. He's Jesus of Nazareth, and when someone speaks truth, they don't hear it, they don't respond to it, they shut it up, they silence it. And I love this. This, <laughs> this guy just yells all the more. He, he, he yells all the more because they too have rejected Jesus' teaching. I mean, it's been ringing that whoever humbles himself will be exalted, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Jesus welcomes babies to him. He gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, you'd think maybe if this crowd had been listening, hey, I wonder if maybe we should do an act of kindness and compassion to someone on the road to Jericho. Nope. They've ignored, rejected Jesus' teaching. That doesn't stop the beggar. You know, one of the things that's great is when, when, you, when, when your eyes start to open to spiritual reality, when you start to understand what's going on, who Jesus is, nothing's going to stop you from getting to him. Whether your friends have to dig a hole in the roof or whether you've got to shout out over a crowd. I love this. They rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more. That didn't silence him. He got louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. He's persistent. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, Luke, Luke is very intentionally crescendoing themes that he's had in, this, in his gospel and even just in this chapter, right? Well, how does chapter 18 start? The parable of the persistent widow. Jesus is saying when you're crying out to God, cry out like a persistent widow. And here this man, he's not going to be silenced by the crowd. He's not going to be intimidated by them. God's Messiah, the son of David, is near I don't care what you guys say. I'm crying out to him because that's the one I need and he's the one who can give me the mercy I need and he's the one who can give me the help I need and he just keeps crying out persistently. Okay, so that's, that's the first scene of our drama. What's Jesus going to do? And now we look at point two, a compassionate and powerful Savior. A compassionate and powerful Savior. I love this. Jesus stopped. He's got a whole crowd watching with him. He just stops and commanded him to be brought to him. You get this subtle undertone here that maybe Jesus isn't pleased with the crowd. It's not that, hey, could somebody maybe go get, stop, go get that man and bring him to me. Jesus treats the beggar with honor, with dignity, with kindness. He asks him his question, what do you want me to do? Jesus, in stark contrast, shows honor to the humble. In fact, Jesus is already in telling the parable of the uh, unjust steward. Remember the unjust steward? He was going to lose his position. And he says to himself, what will I do? I'm not strong enough to dig and I am too ashamed to beg. You've got to humble yourself to beg. You do. Anyone of you who's ever had to ask somebody for something, especially money or things, you, you know it's humbling. This guy sits on the side of the road begging for a living. He has humbled himself. He had to humble himself. I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus says it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In many respects, the poor are a leg up, at least in his day, because many of the poor of necessity had to humble themselves. But more to the point, point two here. This man, this is exactly the type of man whom Jesus for whom Jesus came. This is exactly the type of man for whom Jesus came. Does Jesus have time for him? You bet. I mean, turn back to Luke 4. When Jesus 
begins his public ministry. He's baptized by John the Baptist. He goes out and is tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And he returns to his hometown, to Nazareth. He enters into the synagogue. He walks up in the scroll. Verse 17 of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me, there's that word Messiah, to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Is this the type of person Jesus came to minister to? Absolutely. Turn to chapter 7. This has been echoing in Luke. John the Baptist gets arrested, gets confused. Is, is, is Jesus really the Messiah? And he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him. Chapter 7, verse 20. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that same hour, he healed many people with diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and many who were blind. He restored sight and he answered to them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news or gospel preached to them. So when Jesus wants to point John the Baptist, yes, I am the Messiah, it's back to that passage in Isaiah. What am I doing? I'm doing Isaiah 63. This, this, this is his, his commission. This is what typifies his ministry. Here's a blind man. The crowd, again, evidencing their ignorance, doesn't get it. Ah, no, don't, don't slow us down. Jesus isn't interested in you. But Jesus stops, dead stop, commands them to go bring him to him. Because this is exactly the type of person Jesus came for. And this, is, this is good news for us. I've said this before. No one is too low, too weak, too dirty, too broken, too sinful, too corrupt for Jesus. Far too many people are too great, too wise, too proud, too rich. The God who spoke the universe into existence cares for a blind beggar, treats him with dignity and respect, brings him to him, and then asks him compassionately, what do you want me to do for you? I'm sure Jesus knew. I'm sure any one of us could have guessed. But I think there's something that pleases God when His children ask. This is one of the reasons why we pray. And people say, well, if God knows what we need, and if God's plan is better than my plan, and if God um, is good, why bother praying? Because I can tell you as a parent, I, I like it when my kids ask me for things. Even things I was planning on doing, Dad, can we go on the walk now? Why, yes, we can. And God loves it when His children ask Him. And Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And now notice, He steps up His game of what He calls Jesus even further. Lord. Yeah, this, this man has got some clarity on who Jesus is. He's the Son of David. He's the Messianic King. He is the Lord. Let me recover my sight. There's this request. He's standing face to face with Jesus. whole crowd, which is previously slightly hostile to him, telling him to shut up, he makes his request known. And Jesus does not respond like the crowd. Jesus said to him, recover 
your sight, your faith has made you well. Now what's interesting here is, and we've seen many miracles in Luke's gospel. By the way, this is the last miracle before the cross and the resurrection. And, and Luke introduces the miracles and, and tells how they happen differently. So in chapter 5, the leper Jesus touched. And that was significant because lepers were unclean. You got unclean. No, the leper got holy. Jesus doesn't touch him here. Jesus speaks. Recover your sight. And I think that's slightly significant. And this gets back to some of the literalness of Scripture and the fulfillment of Scripture. But in, in chapter 4, where, where the Messianic Commission is there, what is the Messiah commissioned to do? Literally, it says this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. What is Jesus doing here? He's not just healing Him. He's proclaiming. Receive your sight. God's Word is fulfilled literally. I love that. The detail that Luke adds in. Here Jesus, the very act of the proclamation is the thing that accomplishes it. His Word has power immediately he recovered his sight. And again, that's the hallmark of, of the miracles of Jesus, the miracles of the prophets and the apostles. Full, immediate, clear, unquestionable healing. This isn't a man who had a mysterious pain in his back that is now mysteriously gone. This is a man known to be blind, begging on the side of the road, who immediately recovers his sight. And then he says, the ESV has, your faith has made you well. And admittedly, the Greek verb sozo can mean that. I don't think so here. This phrase, your faith has, fill in the verb there, can also be translated saved. It's what Jesus says to the woman who washed his feet with her hair. No sign of illness there. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace in chapter 750. It's what Jesus says to the woman with the flow of blood. Daughter, your faith has, and then the ESV has made you well, but I would say saved you. It's what Jesus says to the leper who returns from the ten. Rise, go your way. Not 17, 19. Your faith has saved you. And given all the evidence we've seen that this man has thought deeply and biblically about who Jesus is. He understands this is the son of David. This is the Messiah. This is the king. This is the Lord. When that formula is used here, I'm pretty confident more than a healing is announced. This is a justified, forgiven person. And Jesus is saying, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. And again, we see the continuity of Scripture that everywhere and always, it's faith in Jesus that saves. This man has nothing. He couldn't be a bigger contrast between this man and the rich ruler. The rich, the, the rich ruler, by definition, is rich. This man's poor. He has every advantage. He's moral. He's a ruler. He has authority. He has power. This guy's got a seat on the side of the road to Jericho. The rich ruler presumably can see with his eyes this man is blind. This man has faith, and he is saved. He doesn't know much, and Jesus isn't crucified yet, but he knows this Jesus is the, is the son of David. This is the Lord's Messiah. This is the one that the Lord has sent in fulfillment of his word, and it's to him I need to look for mercy. It's to him I need to look for salvation. It's to him I need any good thing I need, I need from him. 
To heck with this crowd, I need him. Jesus says, yeah, that type of faith that looks to Jesus humbly, dependently, dare I say, with childlike faith, yeah, God, God responds to that with forgiveness and grace. Yeah, these themes are coming together here. This humble man, persistent faith. Jesus blesses him. Receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And now we'll just look at the man and the crowd's response. Immediately he recovered his sight. What did he do? He followed him. Now there's the other contrast with the rich ruler, right? What did Jesus demand of the rich ruler? Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide yourself treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Yeah, the rich ruler and this man couldn't be more dissimilar. Because even though this man was poor, and even though this man was a nobody, and he had no power, and he had no clout, he is the one who leaves this scene following Jesus and not the rich ruler. He is the one pronounced the blessing of forgiveness and salvation, not the rich ruler. But I want you to notice, he left all and followed Jesus glorifying God. Now you say, wait a second, he was a beggar, what's he leaving? He left, whatever he had, he's left, he's following Jesus. I think this might be another reason why it's harder for people with possessions and riches to follow Jesus. Part of the reason Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus demanded of all his disciples that they renounce what they had and follow him. It's, that's going to be easier for some people. It simply is. This man leaves everything, follows Jesus. Just like Levi before him, just like Peter before him. And he becomes a true disciple. And like I said, in Mark's gospel, we know he's Bartimaeus. Presumably, this man's known in the local church in the, in the first century. And so the contrast between him and the rich ruler is complete. Now the hypocrisy comes in. The crowd, who a minute ago told this guy to shut up, they praise God. And, and I can't help, because I know what's coming in the rest of the next two chapters, hear that with a certain hypocrisy. They weren't praising God a few minutes ago when this poor man on the side of the road to Jericho needed help. No, like the Levite, like the priest, they're ready to walk on by and could you, you're bothering us. Can you please be quiet? Now Jesus works a miracle and they give praise to God. This is the same crowd. Turn over to chapter 23, by the way. That will be calling for Jesus' blood in about a week. And Luke stresses the point, as do the other gospel writers, that Pilate wanted to let Jesus go. He wanted to release him. He found no guilt in him. And it was a mandate from the people that brought it to a head. Luke 23, 18. Go back a verse actually to 15. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I'll therefore punish him and release him. Make you guys happy, right? But they all cried out together, away with this man, release to us Barabbas, a man who's been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murderer. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. 
The third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I'll therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent and demanded the loud voice that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. This is the same crowd that three or four chapters earlier couldn't figure out whether Jesus was doing miracles by the power of God or Satan. Well, here at least they're not crediting it on Satan. They're giving God the glory. But I, I don't think we're meant to see this as the turnaround of the crowd. No, we got to see another show. We got to see another sign and miracle. This guy's better than David Brain. I mean, this, this is exciting stuff. Praise God for that. Woo! No, don't. The, the, the part, spark of faith, the part to emulate, the part to see, the person you want to be like is the beggar. This blind man. You know, God's salvation is freely offered to each and every one of us. But He calls on us to humble ourselves, become dependent like children, to renounce what we have, to come to Him empty-handed. And there is abundant grace. He, he respects and lifts up and exalts the humble. But those who come to Him proud with conditions, they get broken and humbled. And so we see here the irony of blindness. This crowd on its way to observe their religious festival, keep the law. They don't know who Jesus is. They see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. He's Jesus of Nazareth, and he just worked a sign. Praise God! And yet in the heart of this unlikely convert, this blind beggar, his faith, his persistence, urgency, he knows what he needs. He needs mercy. That's what you and I need. And we have a great and kind, compassionate Savior whose word is powerful. And he did indeed come to set people like you and I free. We seem to recognize that we are the poor, the blind, the captive, the prisoners. And ultimately, the irony is Jesus is going to Jerusalem to accomplish that very thing. The only reason Jesus is able to tell this blind man your faith has saved you is because Jesus is about to die on behalf of this blind man and others like him. So Jesus, on his way to tortuous death, I mean, just imagine if you had some unpleasant, difficult, painful task at hand, how inclined would you be to stop Show compassion to someone. This is the heart of our Savior. He's on his way to die. He know, he's just said he knows what's in store for him. Mocking, being spit upon, flogged, killed. And on his way, he, he dispenses grace and the very forgiveness he's about to purchase on the cross. And so all the themes that we've been looking at in Luke come to a head here with this man. And if you will humble yourself, if you'll cry out to Jesus in faith, if you'll recognize what you need is mercy, you're not coming with your list of rights and accomplishments, you too can be forgiven. You too can become a follower of Christ. And on the way into Jerusalem, as Jerusalem looms, the cross looming even greater still, Jesus plucks from the fire another sheep straying from his fold. Our Savior is a great Savior. Our salvation is a great salvation. And that is what we will now celebrate as we prepare for the Lord's table. Let me pray. Lord God, um, 
How wonderful is our Savior. How compassionate. How kind. How unlike us. Lord God, I pray that you would work in us the humility of this man. Work in us the faith of this man. That we would be convinced about who your Son is and what he has done. Let us recognize our desperate need for mercy and grace. Let us turn to the only one from whom we can receive it. The Lord Jesus, Son of David, Son of Man, Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen.